Nice to be with you. This is your first retreat, or you've done many. We often come into a retreat with a whole set of expectations or projects, things that we want to get done, decisions we want to make, what we perceive as character flaws we want to repair, insights we want to have. And the whole thing can feel kind of like a, you know, an assignment, like a homework assignment or a big project we have to do. But Really, uh, who knows what we're all here to learn? It's really hard to say before we go through the retreat. And it's really hard to predict uh, how our path will unfold, what's going to be important for us. Because the Dharma... And when I say Dharma, that's referring generally to these Buddhist teachings, but sometimes we kind of come to love the teachings so much that to call it Buddhism or any ism feels too narrow. So we call it the Dharma. And... Learning about the Dharma is not like learning about other things. It's not like we can study it in a book or outside of ourselves. All of the learning is really in our own heart. And so what this retreat is supposed to look like for you, I don't know. It's going to look different for each of you. The Dharma, these teachings are going to take life in each of you in a very different way. And so it's important to remember that these teachings really don't have any meaning unless they connect with your own heart in some way, about your own life. Like the Buddha was actually talking about us. It's kind of amazing how the mind, we always make ourselves the exception in a way. But these teachings are about us too. And we need to find how they resonate with us, how they are become meaningful in our lives. 
And we really do that by using the retreat as a kind of experiment to see, like, what, um, what is my life like? What do I want truly? What's the truth of my heart? Who am I? And we have to look for ourselves. The Buddha always says, uh, come and see. Come and see for yourself. And so we're not here to teach you anything you need to remember or convince you of anything or sell you on any ideas. We don't really care what you believe. But I can say, just in working with the staff and Erin and Heather, there are a lot of people who care a lot about your happiness, not what you believe. And your job in this is to find what uh, is meaningful for you in your very life. And so for tonight's talk, I wanted to share a little bit about um, the meaning the Dharma may have for three developmental uh, tasks of adolescence. So what do I mean by that? Uh, Developmental task is something, it's not something that happens in one instant or something, it's kind of like an ongoing development but it's something that's important for our well-being. And they're very general topics, as you'll hear. Uh, But I want to talk a little bit about how the Dharma can um, help us along in in our development. And so hopefully this is uh, relevant for you and speaks to you in some way. So the first uh, point, uh, first developmental task that's really uh, in the foreground, really up front in adolescence is uh, figuring out what you truly value, what matters to you, what you care about. And uh, one of the first observations here on this retreat may be uh, that you really want to be happy. A very deep wish to be happy. And that wish gets expressed in all these different ways from just like, okay, I have an itch on my face and so I reach up and scratch. Everything from as little as that to the biggest grand plan, our 10-year plan for our life. 
all in the service of this goal of being happy. How many people have studied philosophy? Okay. Um, in some ways, you could say, whether we've studied philosophy or not, uh, we are all philosophers of happiness. In the sense that we've all asked the question, what's the good life? What does it mean to be happy? You may not know you've asked it, It may be sort of under the surface, but at some level we've all asked that question. And we're living the answer. We're doing our best, all of us. Right? We're doing our best to be happy. We're living the answer to the question of what what is a good life. And the opportunity on retreat is to start to look at how we've answered that question to what we believe happiness is. Where we get our ideas about what it is to be happy. And the Buddha said that we actually majorly underestimate how happy we can be. That we actually is encouraging, in a certain sense, maybe this is the wrong word, but a certain greed about happiness. We haven't been greedy enough. We've been willing to take, sort of accept half happinesses. And so we come into retreat uh, to see what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about what a good life would be, and to experiment in this laboratory, this very special kind of setup where we can uh, explore. When I was uh, young, I think I was maybe eight years old, I had this, I was surrounded by people who, I, I was fortunate the way I grew up and was surrounded by people who, by traditional standards, were happy, definitely. They had what they wanted um, and were living comfortable lives and were considered successful. But even though I was really young and I, I just had this intuition like they're missing something. And I was only eight so I just kind of kept that to myself. <laughs> But I, I, just, I just had this sense like adults don't know about 
happiness. Now, I wasn't saying I was happy. I was not happy. I was an angry eight-year-old. But I, I just had this intuition, like, is that it? And I knew even then it wasn't going to do it for me. That all of the traditional measures of success is somehow I, I wasn't going to be enough. And so we set out on a spiritual path, uh, maybe first to heal wounds. And then maybe we start to get greedier. We start to want uh, a kind of well-being that isn't shaken by the changing circumstances of our life, that isn't so shaken by the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows of being human. One Zen teacher says this, The more you sense the rareness and value of your life, the more you realize that how you use it, how you manifest it, is all your responsibility. We face such a big task, so naturally such a person sits down for a while. And so we're sitting down for a while together, to see how we want to use this life. Which is, it feels so long sometimes, but sometimes it's, uh, from another perspective, it's actually so short. I was on a retreat, a retreat, Uh, doing all the same practices you're doing of my own. And and there was this one day that was really stormy. It was like thunderstorms. And uh, after the thunderstorms, it wasn't raining anymore, but it was the clouds were so dark. And it was around sunset. And there was just this canopy of darkness covering us. But at the horizon, there was this thin band where the sun was setting and there were these big, beautiful, puffy clouds. And the sunlight was coming through in this just gorgeous, golden way. And I had the thought that that was that little band of sunlight there was our life. Amidst this canopy of darkness, there was just this brief time of light. 
And when you think of all the time that we, before we were born, and all the time after we die, if you add those two together, that's basically almost exactly all the time that ever was. But here we are, right? Sitting in California. It's like here we are, alive. And we want to be careful about how we use our life. We want to live in a way that uh, really nourishes the heart. And so as we try to establish our model of happiness, what a good life is here, uh, we need to understand sort of the rules of the game, like what's it, what's it like to be human and try to be happy. And uh, one of the things we notice uh, is that everything is always changing. That life the moments, experiences are uh, kind of like slipping through our fingers like water running through. And we can't really hold on to anything. We can influence lots of things, but we can't ultimately control anything. And so uh, the question is like, is it possible to be happy even though the world and ourselves are always unfolding? It's such actually a hard thing for me because ever since I was little, I really wanted things just to stay the same, just like, Just stay, stop changing. And I would kind of scramble to get the circumstances of my life to how I liked them. And then I would want to like do a timeout or something and just make everything stay still, right? And... If we're going to be happy, we're going to have to find a way for the heart to be okay with change. This is, uh, the Buddha says, is possible, but we need to see for ourselves what kind of happiness we can have while letting the world flow, letting ourselves and all the people in our lives move and morph and change. Now all this changingness sometimes can create a lot of anxiety. 
And sometimes the translation of of this truth, it's usually translated as impermanence. Sometimes the translation is uncertainty. Our lives uh, are uncertain. We can't know for sure. We can influence things, but we can't control anything. Not even our own bodies. And it takes a little while for the heart to adjust to that. But the Buddha actually says that the deepest peace comes when we can uh, surrender to the changingness of the world. Meditation uh, helps us absorb these things. The heart adjusts to these truths of, of impermanence, of uncertainty. And we don't have to turn meditation into a project of trying to make uncertainty go away. Sometimes the whole meditation and retreat, it can feel like this big, anxious, self-improvement project. Because, of course, we meditate the way we do everything else in life, right? But here we actually have the opportunity to pause and look, how am I, what are the attitudes of my mind I'm bringing to the practice? Am I, how am I feeding anxiety here? We get to look and see. And the metaphor for this practice I like a lot is uh, we're, we're planting seeds. And if you've ever seen a gardener or farmer planting seeds, it's a pretty chilled out kind of thing. It's not like some big frenzy like digging real fast, planting a seed, freaking out, going to the next hole, freaking out. You know, it's like farmers are ch- chilled out. <laughs> Same with us. <laughs> we are not trying to change everything about our body, mind, heart. We are planting seeds. A little kindness here. Uh, Some patience there. A little love for ourselves. A little singing duel with the staff there. (laughs) We're just... (laughs) planting seeds, right? And the other thing that's amazing about this path is that we're also discovering all the goodness that's already here. It's hard to believe 
how much is already here. But we really, really underestimate uh, the capacity of our hearts. So we're learning about what we care about, what we value. Adolescence, also a time when you are developing a sense of self, sense of who you are. And uh, this is an important developmental task. So you're learning what you're good at, how you want to invest your energy, learning to enjoy your accomplishments, to develop skills, to celebrate your mastery of new skills, learning to uh, take some joy in all of that. And in order for that project not to become get all tangled up and cause a lot of stress, it's important, the Buddha says, to be developing uh, a sense of who you are without getting stuck in it. Right? We can get stuck in it. And so in that process of developing the sense of self, if we're holding on too tightly to ideas of who we are, what makes us of value, what we should be ashamed of, if we hold all of that too tightly, that creates a lot of anxiety and a lot of jealousy and a lot of what we call the comparing mind. The, the mind that's always looking around to judge ourselves in relationship to others. Am I better than, worse than, equal to? And that is a, that's a deep habit in my mind. And the places where we take the most pride in who we are, the places where we hold tightest to that idea of who we are, that's where we really start to look around and get jealous or get arrogant or get something. There's an unsettling aspect about that. And so we can think about it more as like we're developing a path rather than a final destination. 
we're developing a path of self-development rather than a destination. You know, when the U.S., when the astronauts first landed on the moon, they planted a flag. Like, remember that maybe a picture? Like, they planted the American flag. They didn't plant, it would have been cool if they planted a flag with the moon on it. (laughs) That would have been cool. But they had to plant, I know, they had to, it was in a space race or something, and they planted the American flag, right? And we do the same thing. We plant lots of flags. Except the flag, it's not the American flag. The flag has two letters on it. M, E. And, of course, we plant these flags to feel safe and good. And maybe sometimes they work a little bit. Um, But, I don't know if you've noticed it, but there's always a little bit of um, alienation, or it doesn't, you know, it doesn't totally sum us up, kind of. And I want to talk a little bit about some of the ways we plant flags. So, one place we plant flags is like in our body. And... uh, we, of course, are living an embodied life, right? There's no question about that. In fact, the, one of the Buddha's meditation instructions is just to come back to the phrase, there is a body. Rather than the breath or sound, sometimes you can just come back, there is a body. We're living an embodied life. But the sense that the body says something, that this body is who and what I am at the deepest level, causes a lot of suffering. Tell a story, embarrassing story, to make this point. When I was um, maybe about 12 or 13, there was uh, something more important than world peace or global climate change or the future of civilization. There was something that was more important to me than all of that. I'm not proud to say that it was my armpits. 
It's okay to laugh. (laughs) This will make sense in a moment. (laughs) So, this is what was going on. I was super, super self-conscious about when I was going to start getting armpit hair. And I know, it's funny. (laughs) In the process of puberty and growth, I was just like, there was something about the armpits that was like this major symbolic value. And I can remember I was on the basketball team and we would have, like, we would wear tank tops, right? And I remember I would wear, I would wear a t-shirt under it because I was embarrassed that at 12 I did not have armpit hair. It's sad. I'm laughing now. But as I think back on it, I can kind of get a flavor of just how painful it was, right? And now I cannot tell you how little I care about my armpits (laughs) or yours or anyone's. But then it was occupied a lot of my mind. Now, why was that, right? At some level, I had planted the flag, me, right here. And my whole sense of who I was and all of that was actually like really deeply identified with the body. Now that's a kind of extreme example, right? But in your own life, you can consider the ways in which you take the body so personally. That what our skin is like or what the shape of our body is, how much we weigh, what our hair looks like, how much that feels like, oh, it's me. And while we exert a little bit of influence on our body with diet and exercise, for the most part, this is just like nature. This is just nature. Like we look out there and we see nature, but when we look in the mirror, we don't see nature. We see me. The Buddha says we need to look more deeply. We often get identified with our skills and it's a beautiful thing to develop skills and be competent and have mastery in ways. But when 
we get too closely identified when we feel like we are our skills, we are our grades, we are our trophies, we are our college application, we are our whatever. It's so much suffering. And when we start to loosen the grip on that, when we start to hold that a little more lightly, it's not like we stop trying or all of a sudden become lazy. It actually frees us up to try harder if that's what's called for. When I was in high school, it was really important for me to um, feel smart. But at the same time, I was so concerned that my accomplishments wouldn't be good enough, wouldn't be as much as my parents, wouldn't be okay in somebody's eyes. I was really so afraid of that, that in order to protect my identity of being, wanting to be smart, I kind of just didn't try things. And I just sort of was half, you know, it was half effort because that way I didn't, you know, if I did fail something, I didn't succeed in something, it wasn't like I was putting all of myself on the line. And so that idea, that cherished idea of needing to be smart was like a prison for me. And letting go of that idea, not holding so tightly, doesn't mean we stop trying, that we stop going for good grades or something like that. Just the heart is open. The last thing I'll say is that we get often very identified with our tastes and styles, right? And that kind of divides up a lot of groups and these are the punks and these, this is goth and this is whatever, whatever we are, nerds, my case. <laughs> um, but I know that never says enough about us either, right? We're not all that. We're not, that doesn't summarize who we are totally. Every once in a while, the person that's into death metal hears that one catchy Britney Spears song <laughs> in the mall, and they just kind of hum along, all embarrassed, right? And we all do that, whatever we like. We're, we're complex, right? We're never just that. And we're always in flux and change. And so if we're not our bodies and we're not our skills and we're not our tastes, what are we? What can we take refuge in? Well, this is something uh, for you to explore yourselves, but... 
there's something like a, a goodness or a very the innocence of our longing to be happy. Something very innocent about our being beneath everything else. And when we first really start to sense into this, to really touch the innocence and goodness of the heart. It'll probably make you cry. And it'll probably make you never want to harm yourself again. And it'll probably never want to make you harm other people. And it will probably make you feel really (coughs) happy to be alive. So Thich Nhat Hanh says, true love only brings happiness. It never makes you suffer. So it's about time to uh, stop, but maybe there'll be some Possibility. The last piece I, I was going to speak about was negotiating relationships in the way the teachings are relevant for that. I don't know if there will be another time, but uh, it's been nice to uh, be with you in this way and look you in the eyes. You know, it's, it's hard from the inside to see the process of the Dharma unfolding. It's, it's really hard because we get kind of caught in the ups and downs of our minds and hearts. But it's not hard when you have a little bit of space and when we're looking at you. It's not hard to see the Dharma unfolding, to see you dropping in, softening, learning. And uh, it's touching. So let's just, uh, you don't have to change posture, but can gently close your eyes and let's sit together for a moment.
May we all be happy. Even knowing all the difficulties of this life, we can still affirm this wish fully. May we all be happy. discussion Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.